Today I'm speaking with Peter Shostedh, a panpsychist, process, psychedelic philosopher who takes much influence from Alfred North Whitehead, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. Panpsychism refers roughly to the idea that mind, mentality, consciousness or sentience is in all things. Process philosophy might roughly be taken to mean that fundamental reality consists in processes and not things. Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, of course, favor a sort of monistic, metaphysical principle, the will, whether to life or power, respectively, as the ground of reality. Now, this is the first of a three-part mini-bloody series, of which the guiding theme is the relationship between psychedelics and philosophy. But in this particular one, we speak to a range of points, from ego dissolution to Henry Bergson's notion of duration, to the relationship between dreams and psychedelic experience, and the cycle of destruction and creation more broadly. We begin by speaking to Peter's own philosophical beginnings and his present intellectual goals, and how psychedelic experience might inform such a pursuit. Okay, well, I am absolutely delighted to be sitting in a room with Peter. Fuck me, I should have asked how to pronounce your name appropriately. I was thinking that's the one thing I need to ask. That's the one thing. It's Go ahead. Peter Shustet H. Peter Shustet H. Yep. And the H, I know, stands for Hughes. Yeah. Stands for Hughes. Just too long. Yeah, I don't know. I like it in the end. I'm sorry, I just ruined your marketing mystique. I'm going to move that there so I can turn and face you a little bit easier. Call me what you will. I shall. I'll call you Peter. Okay. We'll make it simple. Okay. Okay, so Peter, goddamn, I have travelled a little while to talk to you. We're in Penzance, which is right on the southwesternmost tip of the UK. Yeah, near the Land's End. Yeah. Why are you here? Why am I here? Well, <laughs> um, well we're sitting in a, in a little pub called the North Inn upstairs, opposite my old primary school in Pendine. And um, I was brought up here most of my life. I was born in Sweden. But... Um, my father's from London, and he had a friend who was a potter based in Newlyn, which is uh, next to Penzance. Very good friend, so they decided to move here after seeing how sublime the natural beauty is here. And uh, so, yeah, they moved here 10 years before I was born, but I was born in Sweden nonetheless. I moved here as a baby, a few years in Sweden I spent. And then I sort of uh, moved to London. I taught philosophy in London, college there for six years. And then five, six years ago, I moved back here, and now I've settled in a house in nearby. And I love it here. I mean, it's just, um, it's just a sort of very untouched wilderness by the sea. A lot of old Neolithic Bronze Age history here. Mm. Sort of, um, and a sort of authentic. There is, right? There's a history in the UK that seeps through just to at least my raw experience as I, w- as I walk around places. And I'm very attached to that mystique. Mm. And there's something as well about, about being on the edge here, you know, mm. It's slightly, it's a, obviously it's further away from big cities. It's still absolutely attached to civilization, but there is, you know, there's a, there's a nice metaphoric analogy there to the, to the world of thought as well. Yeah. You know, you can be out here walking the fields, surrounded as that so happens by a fertile uh, <laughs> magic mushroom growing, growing territory. So I've heard. And you, <laughs> I don't know who from. Um, and, and yeah, no, it is, it is wonderful. It is, it seems like a wonderful place to think. I, I understand really why you, why, yeah. why you're here in, in some ways. And it's on the edge of Britain, you know? Yeah. A bit like uh, some of my thought, you know, sort of just pushing 
pushing untouched boundaries. Right. Well, that's it, right? You are on the edge. But for, for my part, at least, it's an edge that I am very interested in continuing to explore with you. You've definitely been a big influence on me. I've been following... I, I noticed actually on your website the other day, Ontologistics, that... Um, it's on the website philosopher.eu that's the domain isn't yeah. it that 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 your first wordpress blog post which was never actually posted but the page is still there you can find it somehow it's the same with my bloody really? wordpress as okay. well they're the bastards to maintain aren't they but it says that it was published at the end of 2013 so is that when you put the website up around uh, that sounds about right yeah. but i can't remember well i found it i found it very early 2014 all oh, right pretty early on and part of that is because oh it seems that you and i share a great many interests from from philosophy very broadly mm. to psychedelics to authors uh, like Nietzsche yeah uh, and in my case now um, uh, Jung and I know uh, you've got a summary of Jung on online so obviously you've have spent some time yeah I, t I taught a little bit of Jung at, at um, college in London yeah not too much there yeah but also panpsychism as well mm. and process philosophy perhaps most acutely yeah well you know I have a few I, I think I deep down I have a few aims for for this discussion and part of that is to get a bit closer to how someone's philosophy let's just call it how their pursuit in you know in taking on and, and wending their way and trying to um, bring sets of ideas together into some sort of whole mm. that is then relatable to, to one's life Mm. in some sense how how that process is, is fundamentally the why are you doing what you do because in, in a way for me at least this this whole all of this it's it's necessary mm. i mean i'm choosing to do it in in a very real sense i believe but at the same time sitting here with you right now is is a necessary it's a necessary endeavor i mm. you know there mm. is a certain questioning process and and journey itself towards at the very basic level trying to make sense of things whatever we might mean by that and, and that's led you to entertain what I consider to be a, a really cutting edge interpretation of a way of viewing reality itself from our very limited human perspective that is in accord with much of the great thinking of our past, yet at the same time is very fundamentally opposed to what might be considered uh, philosophical orthodoxy mm. as per the academic institutions of our time so perhaps yeah. you know giving you a very broad launch pad there we have you the individual mm -hmm. who has somehow found his way to exploring these these ideas and then where that actually meets the technicalities of how those views come out looking on page so i don't know i don't know well okay i suppose i can say this that um we were speaking about when we were at the lighthouse earlier we were speaking about nietzsche's will to power and nietzsche of course um, reduces the will to truth to the will to power, you know, knowledge of power, as Bacon said. But I think, like Whitehead and others, there is actually another drive for knowledge, you know, separate somehow from power, even if it's detrimental to one's power. There is some kind of drive, curiosity, which is somehow natural. Perhaps, probably not just to humans. But anyway, I've certainly been afflicted with this drive, and um, I suppose it started my father, who was an artist, painter, he was always interested in philosophy, and he had a number of philosophy books in, in, in our house. I mean, one especially, Eastern, Eastern philosophy. That got me, uh, that started me probably. And uh, then I, so I decided to study philosophy. I thought that was the broadest, most comprehensive uh, route to truth. Science would have been second. Mm -hmm. But of course, that doesn't deal with certain things like um, ethics and uh, consciousness and so on. At least not very well. Why we should be living at all. Right. So it was 
you know, so I always see science as a method rather than right. um, knowledge, really. Uh, it, of course, you know, adds to knowledge. But anyway, so I chose, decided to do philosophy. Got into Nietzsche very early on, and that sort of immediately uh, changed my whole ethical outlook, you know, sort mm. of upturned it really, and that's always How stayed old with were me. You when Nietzsche first smacks you, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's I, too young. I was young, <laughs> I was too young, yeah. Too young. Got me too young, yeah. Uh, so why does, why does Nietzsche so, is so often referenced as the sledgehammer which can yeah. often... To philosophise with a hammer, as he says. Right. Yeah. Why? Because um, I suppose ultimately it's like every good philosopher should, it just hammers down your assumptions you know right. the axioms that you never even question so you know before Nietzsche I was thinking about ethics and I thought well how does one ground ethics is it in compassion is it about um, equality is it you know this that or the other Nietzsche makes one question why one even wants to do that he takes a person back to the history of uh, the ethics of the west and presents motives for why people purport this kind of morality so just at the very least it makes you question it you know even if you disagree with it it suddenly puts it all up in the air. So yeah. that changes you immediately. And then Nietzsche, I mean, I was, became very interested in a central tenet of his, you know, the will to power, a later tenet of his, really, although it's always throughout his work. But he um, expressly talks about the will to power in his later notebooks and later works, published works. And um, my theory, as I mentioned, is that I believe that his theory of the will to power is incomplete. Yes. And um, that's why the most interesting stuff is in the notebooks rather than the published works. But you know, in those notebooks and in the published works, he talks about um, the will to power having an effect form, right? Yes. An, an affectation, yes. sort of form of sentience, going back to Schopenhauer somewhat. And um, this is really what then started me off thinking about panpsychism, you know, the view that mentality is in all things, not just an emergent property of brains. And then that was sort of substantiated when I looked at Schopenhauer after Nietzsche and Kant. He's the bridge between them. And um, at university, I also studied Bergson under Keith Ansel Pearson, who's also Nietzschean. That pushed it further, and then I realised that the sort of culmination of all these thinkers perhaps was, from what I understood at the time from secondary reading, was Alfred North Whitehead. Then, you know, a number of years ago I got into his work, um, which is the sort of most systematically expressed form of panpsychism there is, really, still today. And uh, that's sort of where I am now, so I'm expressing... Um, my ultimate goal, philosophical goal, probably is to try to fuse uh, this notion of will to power from Nietzsche with Whitehead's process philosophy and his panpsychism, or what he calls philosophy of organism, and allowing that to be informed by um, a new field, which is psychedelic philosophy. Yeah, it's uh, bringing so many difficult things together, and to bring them together with psychedelics as well introduces so many anomalies. There's little more mysterious. I mean, apart from psychedelics, life itself is perhaps the only thing more mysterious that sits outside of it. And uh, there's, there's a lot to unpack in what you said there, mm. uh, especially as I hope that this conversation is one that can be of utility to people who aren't technically versed in, in, mm. many, of the, in many of the theories we're talking about here. But at least for my, for my part, psychedelics offer a remarkably different way of relating to one's own being. It's a, it's a radical phenomenological shift. Mm. What's interesting about being in just a broadly referred to as a psychedelic state is the sense of responsibility one has for just maneuvering in the world and the agency one has to take responsibility for orienting through the world amongst what might have been maybe very benign occurrences before. 
mm. but but they all of a sudden take on a greater significance. I yeah. mean, certain elements of the world can become much more salient to you than they otherwise were before. Mm -hmm. But salient in a sense that has this real affective nature to it. That there's a there's a sense of responsibility for how you need to ne negotiate the, the psychedelic environment. That to me is is oh, it's it speaks to a. A microcosm of the the human endeavor itself, and it's funny because I was just saying, hey, I should we should try and uh, unpack some of these ideas and not get too <laughs> esoteric here. But but as the psychedelic experience as being a, a microcosm of the pattern formulation that perhaps we can use to map onto how being itself is mm. is, is is formulated. I don't I don't know if, yeah, well, if you sort of get what I'm going at there. Well, what it brings to mind is. One way in which psychedelic sentience, well, it has resonances with Nietzsche in the sense that it opens up your worldview immediately to different perspectives. So it's a, I think even one, one dose, one experience will change a person most often, as happened to A.J. Eyre. I mean, you know, he didn't take psychedelics, but he had a psychedelic experience in 1888, which he wrote about. He's much more sympathetic to the afterlife after that one experience, and he was the sort of Richard Dawkins of his age, you know. And um, in terms of, I mean, in my experience, yeah, Nietzsche opened up these, these whole ethical questions, um, which immediately relate to how one lives one's life. Um, psychedelics suddenly made me realize that there's so much more to reality than I, than I realized, mm -hmm. you know, because most people think that psychedelic experience is just kaleidoscopic colors, something like this, you know. There's, it's so much more. Right. Especially interested in the relationship between uh, psychedelic experience and certain philosophies then, panpsychism especially. Um, something I spoke about in Stockholm a few weeks ago was was one connection that I that I see is this that Charles Hartshorn, who was a Whiteheadian philosopher, really, he was very you know he was a panpsychist. He gave a lot of rational arguments, and I think that it's the most plausible doctrine, panpsychism. It's just that people aren't are not aware of the arguments, and that's why it's generally considered slightly uh, crazy in the West. Also because of a, a Cartesian legacy that makes people um, think in a completely different way. But once you see the reasons, it's very hard to, at the very least, to not take them seriously. And um, Hartshorn says one of the reasons that people don't, as, as well as what I said, is the, what he calls um, the prosaic fallacy, which is the view that thought can only be the thought that we have, our everyday prosaic, dull consciousness, well, relatively dull. Right. If only, he says, there were another method or another way by which we could attain other forms of experience, this would make people more sympathetic to panpsychism because we, couldn't, we can't imagine what it's like to be, say, a cell, right. a virus or whatever. So he, he, he sort of um, remonstrates that, you know, it's a pity that there's no other way of attaining this form of other forms of consciousness. But of course there is, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and psychedelics certainly gives you a vast new array of uh, mental forms of experience. Yeah. So... In itself, that um, psychedelic experience can add to not the, the reasons for panpsychism, but at least the sympathy towards it. And perhaps this is actually what happened to William James, because he's well known for taking nitrous oxide, ether, and other, certain other substances, but mainly nitrous oxide. And later on in life, in um, a book called The Pluralistic Universe, he talks about religious experiences informing his sympathy for a Fechnerian point of view. And Gustav Fechner was a well-known panpsychist, you see. So I certainly think that, yeah, psychedelics can aid one's cognition of more radical philosophies of mind. And, you know, whatever the truth is with regard to the mind-matter problem, it's going to have to be radical, whatever it is. So therefore, experiencing radical forms of consciousness 
is, I think, a very legitimate way of, at the very least, realizing what's possible, yeah. what needs to be spoken about. Yeah. And that's, that's the new thing, really, now that I'm talking about, you know, psychedelic philosophy. It's just a new field of inquiry within the philosophy of mind and within psychology, neuroscience, whatnot. Yeah. And that's why the conferences are generally interdisciplinary for psychedelics, because yeah. um, it's such, a, it's such an, a novel form of experience that uh, people don't know how to tackle it, you know. Right. Well, it seems to deal with, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like the psychedelic experience itself could ever deal with really anything but a huge dose of, of anomaly. Mm. Uh, I think part of, what, part of what gives it its effective quality is the fact that you are in some metaphorical sense, and maybe not so metaphorical, further out into the domain of the unknown, mm. uh, at least phenomenologically. Mm. Interestingly, Ayer's article was called The Undiscovered Country originally, and they renamed it to what I saw when I was dead. But um, yeah, it's, it's about ma mapping the territory, as they say at the moment, and everyone's a pioneer. Well, exactly. So mapping the territory and... If it can be mapped. If, it if it's be, territory. It we're talking, you know, metaphorically here, sort of, and we're talking about territory, of course. You know, and it might be the case that whatever we uh, map um is merely the best we can do at the present time and so what we're mapping is in fact a uh well it's a, a representation of sorts um and it is true enough uh for the time um it's pragmatic in that sense mm. um but then but but importantly then and, and this is going to try to introduce an idea that i was mentioning to you earlier uh, if we are engaged or to engage in this in this process of exploring and mapping and revivifying our current knowledge structures, then what becomes most important of all is the structure of investigation and communication mm. that enables the continual and the continuation of the mapping and, and remapping. So what then becomes important is our commitment to the kind of communicative reformation right. that makes possible the healthy adaptation of, of knowledge structures. And so, um, but you know, there's a, a paragraph right at the end of one of your essays in Numenautics, and it's the essay on, called, entitled, I think, Bergson and Psychedelic Consciousness, if I'm not mistaken. And you finish like this, you say, In sum, the psychedelic experience is not simply abstract hallucination caused by chemicals in the brain, but rather the diffusing of the individual consciousness into the larger reality and into alternative modes of being. It is the ordinary, everyday consciousness that is the hallucination in the sense that it is but a mere fractional, practical perspective of reality. Right. Um, I think that's very clear as you've written it there, but I wonder if you could unpack that. Okay. Well, a lot of, uh, let's say, either critics or people who have no awareness of psychedelic experience or psychedelia generally, they just immediately assume that all of psychedelic experience is hallucination, you know? And uh, I'm not doubting that some of it is, but what the person who hasn't studied philosophy or science doesn't realize is that our everyday consciousness of the world around us is itself a type of hallucination in the sense that it's only a small fragment then based on our evolved practicality yeah. of what is actually out there. So we're completely blind to infrared, to, um, well, most of the electromagnetic spectrum other than the colors we see. And even then, we perceive it as a color and we needn't do that. There might be more to it than that. We, yeah. we, so, so, you know, what Bergson's um, argument and Whitehead's and even Nietzsche's is that we have evolved to only perceive a small fragment of reality because that's um, all that we need for survival and advancement. And everyone takes this idea seriously now in, in science as well. Everyone knows yeah, this. Yeah, everyone knows this. But I think it's still 
even though people know it, I don't think it's sort of really trickled down into their sort of uh, general awareness that, um, you know, the table we see in front of us is, is actually much more than that. Not that that's an illusion, but rather that it's only a small fragment. So everything we see is a hallucination in that sense, in that fragmented practical sense. Yes. So once we've accepted that, yeah, everything we see is not, um, you know, absolutely sufficiently real, a real representation of what is out there, then one realizes that, okay, so if this is a hallucination, and if psychedelia is a hallucination, then what is their relationship? Are they both, is one a sort of higher level hallucination? Or are there aspects of psychedelia which actually, as it were, break down the hallucination of everyday reality? Mm-hmm. So this is nothing new. I mean, Aldous Huxley wrote about it based on Berg's on that, as it happens in yes. Doors of Perception. But the view is that um, a lot of the stuff out there, which is usually excluded from view, taken care of by what Whitehead calls negative prehensions, is then allowed in, as it were, through, mm. through psychedelics with eyes this open, at least. the reducing valve. Yeah, the, yeah what, what Huxley calls a reducing valve, yeah. uh, introduced via CD Broad, um, ultimately from Bergson. And um, I've got a lot of sympathy for that. I mean, for example, when you look at a, a leaf on, um, on psilocybin, you immediately become aware, well, in certain cases, you, one can become aware of more tones of color, more beauty, you know, um, and um, more intricacies generally, and a heightened emotional perception of the being itself, mm-hmm. of, the, of the plant itself. And that's not, you know, to say that's a hallucination of the real leaf, I think is... Wrong. I think it's rather no, a greater understanding of the totality of that leaf. And it's not a total understanding, but yet there's more. Where my mind uh, goes here is towards the, I think we need to flesh out really what someone like Bergson means by um, the notion of duration and intuition being that which we use essentially to, uh, that's what binds us into mm. the quality of duration itself. Uh, duration being distinct from time as it's understood in physics. So perhaps you could flesh out okay. those notions for us. Well, um, so yeah, Bergson distinguishes duration from time, inverted commas. Time is spatialized duration. In other words, a representation of time, as we understand it, is a, is a, a pictorial and a fixed, representation yeah. and fixed uh, picture of the real flow of experience yeah. that we have. The real flow of experience is duration. It's entering into the, you know, the self, the sort of the continual movement of things as we perceive them. To represent that duration, which is not spatial, it's temporal and qualitative, yes, to represent it for models, so to create technology and to predict the future, we create a timeline, you know, with T1, T2, T3, instance of time. An instant of time is not a real thing. It's just our way of, um, as it were, compartmentalizing it's reality. It's yeah. away from the, the real of the duration. Yeah. Precisely. And um, as a result, we misunderstand reality when we talk of it purely as something that moves forward um, along a line. So what he calls a rhythm of duration is related to panpsychism in an interesting way. So in physics, when you have a timeline, the speed of time is irrelevant. You know, so from, you know, 2017 to 2018, that one year, a human, a certain human will experience that duration as a certain duration then, a real duration. Whereas perhaps a snail or a fly will experience it as a much longer duration. But of course, in terms of a pictorial line, it's the same. But in reality, the duration is totally distinct. 
And there's a really interesting argument that Bergson makes, which can be developed, I plan to later on, uh, which is this, that there's, n- but there's no absolute speed of time. We all experience time different. Even one person can experience time uh, as fast or slower, depending on mood and environment and whatnot. And psychedelic intake, and psych- perhaps, right? Exactly, yeah. and that's where that comes in as well, of course. But um, there's no absolute uh, speed of time, so that means that even a million years, in theory, could be experienced as what we would consider one second, or vice versa, mm. a second as a million Ooh, years. Oh, that's a terrifying one, isn't it? And ultimately, time itself, if you stretch that. Um, duration to infinity time itself does not move there is no time without consciousness so but then you think if you believe that consciousness emerged at one point in time let's say you know two billion years ago something like this or, or less you know then how do you explain then that the motion of time before then there couldn't have been without consciousness according to this theory because there's no absolute speed of time mm. which therefore implies that consciousness must have, or sentience rather, must have existed all the way throughout. Mm. Because otherwise we wouldn't have reached the stage we are now. So that's a quite esoteric argument for panpsychism. But it's um, a fascinating one. Absolutely. So there's a million things to say. I mean, one idea that I'm particularly taken by is, let's say that if, if in order to preserve in our communication what is qualitatively most real, this sort of relation we have to duration we become our action our embodiment of ideas our action in the world is is tied up with the progression and the qualitative nature of that duration and in some sense it it places a a relevance to our very action right really at the center of of the picture in a way that is in a way that just isn't there at all on the, on the materialist and certainly the epiphenomenalist view where consciousness is sort of just like a an, an add-on a byproduct mm. that may may you know may as well be there or not it has no actual causal relation steam, to the steam from a steam train as Huxley Thomas Huxley said yeah. right um, and so if if our actual action and is is becomes involved there's there's some things I need to add to this to make this as clear as it as it needs to be. But but where I'm trying to to move the conversation towards, and perhaps you can help me out here, given what we spoke about at the lighthouse and before, is the idea that that, that uh, Carl Jung explored in 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 great depth, as did uh, Neumann, as now does Jordan Peterson, to a an absolutely unpredictable uh, degree of we can say popularity. This sort of idea is, is right at the heart of his thinking in some fundamental sense. And, and that is that the, the hero's journey, the exploration out into the unknown, and the return with said information after a conquest of a dragon or what have you, just to stay in a very fairy tale type metaphor talking about this idea. It's the exploration out and the return back into the structure mm-hmm. constitutes the essential process of knowledge adaptation and updating what might now be referenced as a previously fixed structure okay so so if if we refer to what we think about the world empirically or descriptively using the bergsonian terms we just have here we have a system of sort of fixed representations in some sense but in order to update them in a very real sense we have to engage with the unknown of the world itself Mm -hmm. at some at some brutally experiential level yes in in order to save what is in a sense most most real mm. um but but it's a strange thing to tie these worlds together because on the one hand we have a, a you know a really mythological way and a very psychological way of talking and on another we have a 
what hopes to be a very analytic way of, at the end of the day, of, of talking about metaphysics. Mm. So, but, but do, do you see the links between these yeah. ways of thinking that, that I do? Okay, yeah. I mean, my, my knowledge of um, Jungian psychology is, is not deep, but the hero's journey, I mean, the hero's journey today is psychedelic experience, you know, like oh, we were yeah. saying, uncharted territory, the undiscovered country, of course, that means death in Shakespeare, but uh, certainly going there, it's somewhat risky psychologically if not physiologically but certainly psychologically Absolutely. risky and i don't recommend it to every person for Absolutely that reason not. but um i think there's so much to gain there i mean at the very at the very least new f- phenomenological concepts and tools perhaps but of course you have to make the journey come back try to analyze it in that way and then i think we can um, certainly add on to the philosophy of mind completely at the moment philosophy of mind is very restricted to mm-hmm. prosaic sentience that's it you know which is only the smallest well not the smallest but it's very interesting but it's a small element of what can be experienced mm-hmm. i mean um even the classification of phenomenology into concepts and percepts and things like that can all be questioned very much so there's a whole as i say new land out there to explore to yeah to um journey to and back i think that also i mean in terms of in terms of uh, basic science, you know, the neural correlates of consciousness are, you know, can learn a lot from it. David Nutt says, you know, if you want to understand consciousness, you've got to look at psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah, in terms of, not only in terms of, you know, Wissenschaft, you know, general knowledge for all people, but in terms of your own self, you know. Nietzsche said, the knowledge acquired, or the experience acquired in dreams, adds to the richness of one's life as much as does everyday life right and if you consider psychedelic experience as a sort of you know incredible dream really yeah then of course you know the richness of your life is you know immeasurably heightened so people who don't do psychedelics are really you know um keeping their quality of their life low with the qualification like i said that it's not for everyone because some people are quite happy like that you know some people are quite happy with everyday reality routine practicality whatnot but but for knowledge uh, seekers, yeah. you know, one has to take the risk. One has to make that journey. Yeah. Well, ab- absolutely. Um, might be worth saying there that that I, it seems to me that the the affective meaning associated with psychedelic consciousness draws from the same substrate in some sense that that dreams do. Um, that that the real affective, yeah, the, the affective meaning that you in, that you encounter, that you that agitates you, that, that imbues you, that, that you relate to as though it's part of who you are in some sense in, in these moments of going through the experience, draws from the same imaginative, qualifier on the use of imaginative there, um, as, as, as dreams do. Mm. Now, Jungian interpretations of dreams lead to uh, concepts like archetypes. An archetype here being some fundamental pattern of representation that characterizes if we bring in Bergsonian terms, which Jung doesn't, that characterizes something, characterizes qualitative action as it takes place in, in duration. Now, yeah, these are two technical terms to use, but um, so, okay. So do the, the yeah, one thing I just, before you continue, is very interesting, I think, um, to compare phenomenologically the difference between, although they have this shared base, no doubt, it's very interesting to still distinguish dream the the average i mean there are so many different types of dreams and there are right. so many different types of psychedelic experience but to generalize yeah and i think you can it's interesting to compare dreams to psychedelic experience to hypnagogic hallucinations mm-hmm. um and perhaps other other similar 
forms of consciousness meditation perhaps yeah. something like this and see how they do differ it yeah. seems to me like one not always but generally dreams have a narrative you know you are in them and you walk along and you do something Absolutely. even if you turn into a, a lorry or whatever yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. still yeah, yeah. somewhat narrative but in contradistinction hypnagogic hallucinations and uh, psychedelic experience generally speaking again often don't have that narrative yeah. in fact you even you know famously you lose yourself in other words well well you not you, because that's saying you're still there, but the self is lost or fragmented Certainly or becomes one with everything. The ego self, Certainly yeah. Okay, self. yeah. Yeah, so although dreams are somewhat similar, they are, you know, they do differ in very interesting ways. Right, yeah. So, so it may be the case that the, the narrative, the structural narrative of someone undergoing a psychedelic experience is lost to, to that person at the time. Certainly that they don't have a cohesive representation of what it is at the time. Although it's often the case, I think, that much of what helps people process what they've been through is then after the fact mm, yeah. to then go about ascribing some sort of narrative or description of it. Yeah, I mean, you always say, like, I then experienced this and then I saw this and then right. I did. But of course, that's retrospective, as you say. Certainly the tying together is retrospective. However, the affective meaning that's encountered that then later is reflected on in order to tie together very well may still draw on the same, well, sources of meaning. It may be the case that, that what you happen to notice about the location of objects in a room or perhaps the particular activity that two people are doing in front of you, um, perhaps one of them is slightly frustrated at the other person and there's a sort of aggressive mode of communication between them and and this under the psychedelic experience perhaps fragments apart how secure you feel in the social environment might make you think of just how tentative and uh, temperamental societal relations can be and and then maybe starts to have you dissociate your security sort of sort of fragments and and all of a sudden you have here you might recognize in front of you a certain warring perhaps of of a masculine and, and feminine element and all of a sudden the people arguing in front of you take on much more meaning than just the than just uh dan and mary that were having a chat but now they might in some sense be standing for uh, mm. the, the two pillars of the two principles that hold society together and that we use as representations to sort of buttress us in the world right from the beginning of right from the beginning of life and so th things can take on these narrative um, tropes that you wouldn't expect someone to be able to put together at the time if they hadn't been living with and working with such archetypes for a long period of time and even then i believe in psychedelics they're so powerful that the possibility always remains there for them to completely subsume you and submerge whatever you can pull together as coherent in the moment and you are truly out in the unknown so it, it doesn't surprise me that such a fragmented coherence is part of the psychedelic experience. Mm. But to the extent that we're engaged meaningfully in the world at all, it seems to be the case that we can't escape how we are involved with it, how life is involved. Mm. Life seems to have, a, if nothing else, an interest in keeping itself around preserving itself and also complexifying itself, it's, it seems. And um, my point might be whether the post hoc analysis just puts together the narrative or not, mm. the themes that it draws on seem still to appear and indeed constitute what people speak of as so relevant and interesting in their psychedelic experiences. So two things really there. The notion of the self that runs through there, first of all, although you may not feel that you are, you know, 
a self. Mm-hmm. And again, you is not the word, not the right word. I should say the notion that the self is not there um, may be felt by whom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course, if it's remembered, there is that unifying factor, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. And that's perhaps some, something analogous to what Kant calls pure apperception. It's what you have to assume is that although you can never perceive it directly, as you can with the psychological self, empirical apperception, there must be something underneath which unifies these memories of what happens even when you are not yourself, as it were. But interestingly, there, of course, there could be many psychedelic experiences which are never remembered. It's, it's theoretically possible that there are immense, what would otherwise be life-changing um, conscious experiences which are completely lost. Right. How does one tell? You know, this is, this is an interesting question. So, but maybe everything is somewhere retained somehow. With regard to archetypes, again, it's not my, really my field, but certainly I've had very you know, typically archetypical visions or experiences and psychedelia, such as Satan, becoming Satan, right. feeling that, being told that Christianity is correct, seeing this giant cliff with this cross cracking mm. through it, sort of in my face saying, believe this, you know. Mm. And um, I mentioned before Nietzsche's, uh, Jung's essay on Wotan, which brings in Nietzsche. And uh, Jung's view is that really Nietzsche should have called Dionysus his main god, at least at the beginning and end of his work, uh, Wotan, because that's what it really is. But he didn't because of his Greek affections, Wagner and so on. But, um, you know, I'm probably sympathetic to such an archetype. You know, Dionysus, of course, was the god of intoxication. So that brings us full circle. Mm. But if he is Wotan, then that, of course, also represents the great warrior king, which, again, from a Nietzschean point of view, I've got sympathy for in terms of a sort of romanticism of the past, especially my Scandinavian past. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think that the, the thing that calls me towards being more and more interested in mythological representations of meaning fundamentally um, was that an image, as it were, can contain what an image can convey may take several pages to convey yeah. and maybe you still can't even in that right yeah i find that i have a dream log and just conveying the most basic sense of a dream sometimes mm. can take reams of pages one meaning one one image yeah and so what images seem to have allowed allowed us to do is to hold contradictory elements in them in some sense and there is a strange in the dissociation of the ego, there is a strange... Because when people talk about ego dissolution, they mean this. They, I think they mean something like the annihilation of your ordinary way of relating to being moment to moment and perhaps the coherence of that moment to moment experience. Yeah, that's basically what Kant calls empirical perception. Right, okay. Psychological self. Yeah, but, but, as, but as we've discussed, there remains a, a, a nexus or a node of experience there that persists. And, yeah. and I think, you know... For memory's sake, exactly. Right, and I call that something like the explorer. It's just a metaphorical word, mm. but it, there is this persistence. Yes. And so, okay, we can be destroyed, but remain. I mean, Jünger talks about this destruction as a temporary death. So his, his belief, it, it seemed, at least from his correspondence with Albert Hoffman, creator of LSD, was that um, the psychedelic experience, this is what happens to you when you die. Um, this is similar to what Air thought as well, mm. or how they interpreted their experience. It's this complete fragmentation of the individual self, but yet something remains. And uh, the interesting thing is, could that be a taste of the afterlife? Well, again, it, when we talk about metaphysics, we can never speak about proof, because proof only exists in mathematics and logic. Mm-hmm. And then you can question that relationship to reality anyway. Mm-hmm. Even in science, you can't really get proof. You can only get, it seems, if you follow Popper anyway, a proof of falsification. 
So there's a theory out there. We we never really know it's true, but we at least can hold out the possibility that it will be disproved. Mm. But with metaphysics, I mean, I remember in Sweden actually people saying, "Yeah, but you can't prove prove this stuff." But yeah, because if you, if you stick to proof, you're stuck to solipsism. You can only prove that you yourself exist. It seems, and that's it. So we talk about um, inference to the best explanation or analogy or whatever. And um, I'm agnostic here about the afterlife, but certainly. It's an interesting idea that, yeah, psychedelic experience does offer you this taste of death. Generally quite exciting, unless you have a bad trip, and then it's actually quite horrifying. And, right. and that's what, what I mean when I talk about psychedelics being psychologically damaging. I mean, if you were religiously minded, mm. if you were brought up that way, and then you have this horrific uh, experience on psilocybin of uh, hell, something hellish, mm. you know, then, that, then you're not going to look forward to your death. <laughs> I mean, even, even less so than normal. Right. But, of course... And you can look at the Tibetan Book of the Dead or whatever and realize this is the phase. I mean, even in the Eleusinian Mysteries in ancient Greece, you know, the first phase was horrific, horror, terror. And then eventually the, the great Elysian fields, you know, of their heaven. That was the whole point of, you know, the, the, the sort of annual Eleusinian Mysteries in ancient Greece. You know, it was, it was to prepare one for death. Um, that's what, you know, Plato said and other great thinkers. So, yeah, so, I mean, okay, so if there's survival after death, then, of course, it isn't on the individual level, but psychedelics perhaps offer that example of um, existing without, you know, this empirical perception, as it were. still with me thanks for listening part two will be online next week where we round out this discussion of death and move to discuss the extent to which psychedelic experience can reveal an authentic connection to metaphysical purpose to know when it will be released you can like the facebook page follow me on twitter or subscribe anywhere itunes uh, stitcher tune in using the rss feed any of your podcast apps should be on there all good 